Uh, we are continuing our Friday morning series looking at 1 Corinthians, and today we're going to look at parts of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, if you remember from last time, we were in 1 Corinthians 8, in which Paul really talked about um, being willing to give up certain things in order to not be a stumbling block to weaker uh, people with weaker faith. And it was a discussion about uh, food, and um, there was some debate about, you know, what if somebody brought some food that had been sacrificed on the altar at an uh, idolatrous temple, but then was available to eat now? Was it still legitimate to eat it, or were you committing idolatry by eating this kind of food? And that was the discussion, and Paul said, well, basically, it's fine to eat the meat, it doesn't really matter, but there might still be some that's so associated with that idolatry that it would cause them to stumble. It would be a tough thing for them to do. And so he says, if that's the case, then give it up. Well, Paul's really going to continue that discussion today about freedom, but he's going to, well, he's really going to cast it in terms of how we should use our freedom. And what we're going to see is that he ultimately wants to use uh, his freedom that he might win some. That's a, a famous phrase in this particular chapter, that he might win some. And that really is the purpose of not being a stumbling block either, that you might win some to the faith, to Christ. And, um, and so all this reminds me, I mean, and especially this discussion reminds me of the phrase, uh, if it saves one life, then it's all worth it. Of course, you know, being a church planter for the last five years, that phrase hung heavy over my head is uh, so often the work of doing sort of missionary or mission work like that uh, really is slow going. And you have to tell yourself, you know, if all this work just just brings one person to faith, then it's worth it. Uh, that can be kind of cliche, you know. I mean, uh, we, we can say those things and not really believe it. But but in truth, when, it, when we're talking about someone's eternal soul, it really is worth it. It really is worth it what might uh, come our way. And so, so the discussion I want to have today as we look at various parts of 1 Corinthians 9, again, I'm not going to read the whole passage just for sake of, the sake of time, but you can certainly have it open and, and reference it as, as I will reference the verses, is how much sacrifice is it worth to save one soul, to save someone? Um, now, of course, got to give the caveat, we're not doing the saving. Jesus is doing the saving, of course. But nonetheless, he's called, uh, called his people to be uh, workers in his, in his field, workers in the harvest. And so there is this sense in which he is working through us in order to save some. Well, how much sacrifice is it worth that that might come to pass? The first question uh, that comes to my mind is, is whether it's worth sacrificing money or not. Certainly, according to our text, it would appear that that would be the case. If you listen to Paul's words again, uh, our words in verses 13 and 14, he says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, most of us will not be in a position like Paul's where we would have the option of sacrificing our salary for the sake of others, which is what Paul did. He had the right to take a salary as an apostle, as a pastor. He makes that pretty clear in the rest of the passage as he points out that, that others did. But in Paul's case, 
he refused to take any kind of salary from the churches he served because, well, he didn't want money to ever be brought up as a potential stumbling block to someone coming to the faith. And so he chose to do this as a way, as a means by which he could uh, extend his outreach to people. And indeed, it is because of the financial sacrifice of many that we are able to send missionaries all over the world to proclaim the gospel to those who have not heard or to those who need to hear it again. It is because of uh, people's financial sacrifices. I, I can attest to this. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of financial sacrifice that the church that I planted in Epiphany was able to sustain itself. Without the gifts and the financial sacrifice of so many, it would never have been possible. In fact, that is why here at Hillside, we can, uh, we can preach the gospel here week after week after week in various forms and various formats because of the financial sacrifice of many. And so Paul makes it pretty clear that yes, uh, financial sacrifice is worth it. It's worth it that we just might see one person saved. I would imagine that many of you have seen the movie Schindler's List. Um, I can't help, whenever I think about this idea of financial sacrifice, thinking about that that movie, and especially one of the final scenes in that movie. Uh, by, by the time the scene takes place, the war is over, and the 1,100-plus Jews that Schindler saved through his hiring of them are now about to uh, say their goodbyes to him. Now, initially, when, when Schindler uh, started hiring these Jews out of the concentration camps, he really was doing it solely as a means to get cheap labor. And so for most of the time, he was greedy and became rich off of their labor. But, but towards the end, he, he's shown to have a change of heart, recognizing their plight. And because of his saving them, the rescued Jews wanted to do something nice for Schindler. So they, they take any gold that they can find from their teeth, uh, from any scrap piece of metal they had lying around, and they forge this ring for him. And it's a great piece of acting because when, when Liam Neeson, who plays Schindler, is handed this ring, his face just, just cracks. And he whispers over and over again, I could have got more. I, I, I could have got more. And suddenly he starts going around to all his possessions and, and calculating how many more Jews he could have saved if he had just sold off some of these things. If I had just sold this car, I, I could have gotten 10 more. If I had sold this suit, I, I could have gotten two more. And on and on he goes, be, beginning to sob because he recognizes how much more important their souls were than his stuff. This is indeed what Jesus did for us to be saved. When he, when he came, he was said to have nowhere to lay his head. He, he didn't ride in caravans with great pomp and circumstance, but, but rather on a, on a donkey. The, the crown he wore, of course, was not one of gold, but, but of thorns. And as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So that's the first thing that I see in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says it's, it was worth it to him to sacrifice financially in order that some might be saved. But the second thing is, is he notes that even sacrificing family time uh, is worth it that some might be saved. Again, Paul 
clearly does that and chooses to do that in his ministry. In verse 5 of this chapter, we hear Paul discuss the fact that, that Peter and others had wives that traveled with them in their ministries. And again, that's all good and that's to be commended. That's a great thing. But Paul says he and Barnabas didn't take, themsel- didn't take to themselves wives, at least, at least partly for the sake of the gospel. We know this because back in chapter 7, he explains a little further that, that not having a family gave him more freedom to focus on bringing the gospel to the lost. Now again, though, though most of us uh, in this life statistically will have a spouse and, and children, uh, the reality is in order that we might save some, uh, it may require sacrifice of some time that we could be spending with our families. This is, of course, uh, most certainly true for pastors often. Um, in fact, sometimes it's taken too far by pastors. I've been guilty of that myself. Um, and so it can be tough to find that balance. But, but even if you're not a pastor, you know, imagine yourself inviting, you know, someone to church with you. And, uh, you know, you you know that they're not a church goer, but, but they agree to come. But then they tell you, well, the only way I can get there is, is if you give me a ride to church. So can you pick me up a little bit early? You say, okay, sure, sure, sure. So you pick him up, you take him to church. Already, you're not having as much family time as you would have because you're having to spend time going and picking up this neighbor of yours and, and driving them to church. But then after church, of course, the person needs a ride home. And, you know, not for nothing, it's nice to go and have a meal after church. And so you decide to take your neighbor out to church with you and your family uh, to go have a meal. Now, that doesn't seem like a huge sacrifice of time, but indeed it is a sacrifice. And why is it done? That this person might be one to the faith. It's it, at least partially. Doesn't I mean it doesn't mean it's the only thing. You might just really enjoy hanging out with the person. But part of the reason you sacrifice this time is that you want to see people come to faith. Indeed, in, in order to save you, Jesus Christ does not take for himself a wife or, or have any children of his own during his earthly ministry. He was singularly focused on the mission at hand, which was the salvation of your soul. Though it would have been completely within his rights to take a wife, he willfully gave that up to seek and save the lost. Now, these things mentioned so far would have us thinking in pretty big terms, Financial sacrifice, family sacrifice, that's, you know, right to the heart of what we focus almost all of our attention on every day. But, but the last point made here in this text, I think, is a, is a question that, that I think actually gets to the heart of the whole matter. And that is, is a person being saved worth sacrificing our preferences for? Now, this, this is a huge principle and could most certainly have a sermon really all to its own, and I have preached sermons just on this passage. But but listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. In my mind, this is sort of the missionary text. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. 
I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. In this passage, Paul really reflects the missionary heart of the Christian faith. And yet, of course, it's not merely missionaries that, that are to have this heart. In order to win some, we Christians are, are called to some extent to adapt or to use a, a, a theological word, contextualize our message about Jesus to whatever culture we serve. This means that in order to win some, we ought to be aware of the language our culture speaks, what our culture values. We don't change the content of our message about Jesus ever. I mean, it's always the same message, but it is adapted into the languages and customs of the cultures that it goes to. Paul demonstrates a little of what this looks like in his sermons uh, throughout the book of Acts. For example, if you look at his sermons to, uh, to the Jews, when he goes into synagogues, he almost always begins by mentioning things Jews and he would already agree on. Uh, we, don't, we know, he just takes for granted. There's one God that he gave the law through Moses, and then he connects that to Christ and how Christ is the fulfillment of those things. However, in a famous passage in Acts chapter 17, as he speaks to a Greek audience at Mars Hill, he doesn't do that. He speaks very differently. He mentions their gods, their poets, their cultural customs. In order to win some, Paul willfully goes out of his way to learn about his neighbor that he might effectively share the gospel with them so that they might be able to hear what he's saying so that it doesn't just come off as, as gibberish. This, this seeking to be all things to, to all people has really been uh, our church network's um, method with our missionaries and church planners all throughout our history. If you go back and look at the pictures of early missionaries from the, from the early 1900s that are connected with our church body, the Church of the Lutheran Brethren, they are indeed Westerners, but they are dressed just like the Chinese dressed at the time if they were going over to China, or they're dressed just like the Africans that they were going to seek to serve. In North America, we, we are facing a new mission field all around us. And I think sometimes we're slow to recognize it, but the reality is so many of our neighbors are moving from different cultures and countries all over the world. And we, we are called to also find creative ways in order to bring the message to the people that we interact with. Of course, you know, being, uh, you know, in the thick of it for the last five years in New York City, um, I got to get a lot of practice doing this. You know, I spent the first year and a half, especially of that experience, just going out and talking to strangers every single day. I mean, it was my full-time job was trying to talk to strangers and somehow convincing them to join us in our apartment for dinner and a Bible study. And I'll tell you, there was a lot of adapting that had to go on as I interacted with various people. If I was talking to, you know, some, um, you know, tech genius that worked at Google, there was a different mode of conversation than if I was talking to, let's say, a, a, a Nigerian nanny who was uh, watching her, uh, watching some kids that day. There was just a different mode of conversation because there was different interests. There was different backgrounds. And so all the conversations had to be adapted to the person. The content of the message of the gospel never once changed. 
But the things we talked about surrounding the gospel were, couldn't, I mean, could be more different than night and day. And that, that's the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here. He's acknowledging that, I mean, he says, to the weak, I became weak. To the ones under the law, I became under the law. I, I mean, I'll do anything. I become all things to all people that I might win some. And Paul describes his motives for that this way. He says in verse 24 of chapter 9, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So on a practical level, Paul is saying, I, I, I take this so seriously that I'm like an athlete training for a big competition or a boxer training for a big match. I, or, or, or a runner training for a, a big meet. I'm, I, that's the way I view this task of bringing the gospel to the world. How much is it worth to save one soul? That's the question. And Paul says, it's worth disciplining myself. It's worth adapting. It's worth becoming all things to all people that some might be saved. So yes, in order that some would be saved, it, it will require, it does require, sacrifice. And that leads to the, to the last part here before we'll wrap up. Uh, if, if you're like me and you hear all this stuff, you read the whole chapter of chapter 9, you, you sit here hearing a message like this from Paul and thinking, man, I'm nothing like Paul. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can find lots of time where I'm not thinking about my neighbor, let alone seeking to witness to them. In fact, I can think about plenty of times where even though I would go out to witness to my neighbors in New York City, there would be plenty of days where I would get to the coffee shop or get to the cafe and I would be so intimidated by the thought of having to start so many awkward conversations that I would sit there for the first hour and pray. And then sometimes I would just not feel like I could do it that day and walk away. I wouldn't be disciplined or I'd be too busy doing something else. And I find myself saying, uh, you know, feeling like I had, I had fallen short that day. And, and so, so this needs to be said as well. We, we need to end this with the thought of, of how much God thought the salvation of your soul was worth. And the answer, of course, is the blood of his very own son. I, I need to let you know that Jesus found your soul so valuable that he lived, died, and rose again to save you, not based on how well you do in your effort to bring the gospel to others. He knew you'd fall short. He did it. He went through all this because he knew that you'd be tempted toward caring about your money more than others, so he willfully went without money in your place. He did it because he knew that your family would mean more to you than the salvation of others, so he willfully went without a family for you. He did it because he knew that you would struggle to get past your own preferences for the sake of others, so, so he left the comforts of heaven for you in order that he might win you. I want to let you know that even, even if you have coldness toward your neighbor, that, that is forgiven because of Christ. I want to let you know that his love for you and his salvation of you does not and will not change 
because of your failure to become all things to all people that you might win some. He's already done that for you. You are forgiven of your distraction and your sometimes lack of care and your pride and your despair and your fear of rejection. You are not seen by those things. You are hidden in the righteousness of Christ. It has all been done for you. And he has won you. Now, in that reality, knowing that you don't go out to win your neighbor to earn brownie points with God or to sustain your relationship with God, because again, Jesus does that too. Let's go out with reckless abandon and seek to win some. Let's see what God does when his words unleashed through our very feeble and imperfect lips. Let's see who he who decides to save. Let's see how he decides to work. We will do it imperfectly. I promise you, believe me, I know more about failure in this than I do success. But I do know that God has even used a stumbling, bumbling buffoon like myself to bring the gospel to people that needed it. And yes, he saved some through that. So have confidence. The Lord is with you today and always and will never leave you nor forsake you as you go out to the world seeking to win them to him. That's it, folks. That's Friday morning's devotion. Uh, I hope you have a great weekend.